right, so we are continuing our series through the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapter 6, I'm sorry, chapter 5 through chapter 7. Um, and we're nearing the end. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 to 12. And so I um, encourage you to turn there so that you can follow along as we study through these verses, uh, Matthew 7 verses 7 to 12. And I've mentioned this multiple times. We've said this multiple times as we've walked through this series that the Sermon on the Mount is not filled with entrance requirements for the kingdom of heaven. How, how do I get in? How do I get into heaven? Well, if you do this and this and this and this and this, then you'll get in. These are not entrance requirements. They are the ethics of the kingdom of heaven. So we come into the kingdom of heaven by the grace of Jesus that was purchased for us on the cross as he died for sinners like you and me. If we trust in Jesus, we turn from our sin, turn from trying to run our own lives, we trust in him, then we are saved. We are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, his kingdom. And we can, by his grace, live out these ethics of the kingdom in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. So the Sermon on the Mount starts off with our need. We are poor in spirit. We are spiritually bankrupt. We need God's grace. We need his mercy. And Christ came to give it to us. And then by that grace, by that mercy, we can live out the ethics of the kingdom, following Jesus. So this call to follow him is a serious one. We must change. We should expect that. Jesus started out his earthly ministry saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So we're going to need to turn from certain ways of life and follow him in new ways. But that's actually turning on the faucet of, of grace and peace and life and vitality because all these other things, when we're, we're not following Jesus, it's not how we were meant to live. And it's actually doing us harm rather than good. So we must change, but this change is a good thing. And it's changed from the inside out. So Jesus is not talking about some kind of Christian veneer that you paste on the outside. It's not just behavior modification, you know, change a few things. We're not adding the Jesus garnish to the plate of our lives. This is complete renovation. So I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing and so you're not surprised. But presently he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing up a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace. He intends to, to come and live in it himself. So we're going to need to expect that <laughs> Jesus has plans to change us. And so let's be ready and receptive. So we hear, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? We struggle with feeling entitled. 
we're going to need to change. Blessed are the meek. We constantly have this my rights orientation. We want to win. We're going to need to change. Blessed are the merciful, he said. Yet we naturally nurse resentments and bitterness, right? Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Follow me, trust me. Blessed are the pure in heart, and yet we're so often divided, conflicted. We want to eat our cake in the kingdom, and we want to have the cake of the world too. We hide our light under a basket rather than letting it shine. We fear persecution, fear people making fun of us or just ignoring us. We're quick to anger, cutting other people down and cutting up people in our minds and with our words. Jesus addresses these things. He's getting to the heart of who we are. He wants to change us from the inside out. Lust simmers like, you know, like lava in our souls. Doesn't take much for it to break out with this desire for someone who is not ours. Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And yet hate and gossip and slander is way more natural to us than loving and praying for enemies. When it does come to spirituality, we want people to see our good deeds. But Jesus says, don't don't do it to show off and receive the praise of people. You know, we oftentimes want treasure on earth over treasure in heaven. We're anxious about our lives and tomorrow and we seek the same things as everybody else. And like we looked at last week, we are so often hypercritical, point the finger out there. It's as easy as breathing rather than looking first at the log, taking the log out of our own eyes so that we can see and help somebody else with the speck in there. So how in the world are we supposed to live these ethics of the kingdom? Well, as we near the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to tell us how. The passage is intended to be encouraging, to be good news as we see these standards, these, this life that Jesus is calling us to live. How in the world are we going to do this? Well, he offers us grace here and good news. So let's dive in and see what he offers us here. First point. Pray believing verses 8 and 9. Matthew chapter 7, beginning, beginning in verse, I'm sorry, 7 and 8. So ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. So all of these imperatives are in the present tense and they're emphatic. So keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. Jesus wants us to persevere in prayer. His disciples should expect to persevere in prayer. We need to ask and seek and knock and keep on doing it. Just notice also that there's a progression here in the command. So ask is the starting point, but seek is kind of like another level, right? It's action in addition to the asking. You go after, you pursue that thing. And then knocking is even another level beyond that, right? It's expecting to be answered, Like, hey, let me in, let me in. So we are to pray actively and persistently, pursuing God and his grace through prayer. John Stott summarizes um, a thought from a man named Richard Glover who suggests that a child, if his mother is near and visible, near and visible, asks, Mom, can I have... 
If she is neither near nor visible, he seeks. Mom, mom. And he goes around the house finding mom to ask for what he wants. While if she is inaccessible in her room, he knocks. And probably many of you moms, uh, normally, (laughs) you want to like lock yourself in the bathroom, you know, for a few minutes. If you have young kids, for a few minutes of peace, uh, maybe especially in these days of lockdown, and you just probably can't seem to find any uh, solitude. So anyway, thankfully, God is not hiding from us. He is not like us. Um, Nothing against you moms. You need to lock yourself in the bathroom now and then. Um, But anyway, ask, seek, knock. God is welcoming this. His resources are infinite. Then Jesus goes immediately from commands to promises. So ask, seek, knock, because everyone who asks receives. So he's speaking to his disciples. Every disciple of mine, everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. So has it ever struck you how kind of repetitive this verse seems? It's almost like it's too simplistic. So ask and it will be given to you because everyone who asks, receives. (laughs) Seek and you will find for the one who seeks, finds. Knock and it will be opened to you for to the one who knocks, it will be opened. So, I mean, isn't that like repetitive, even overly simplistic? I mean, what's the point of repeating the point like this? The point is that Jesus wants to repeat the promise. The certainty of the promise motivates our coming, our persistent, continual coming. So, we're probably quite inclined not to believe him. So he wants to make it very clear. Prayer is God's means to give and to reveal and to open. Prayer is a primary means that God has ordained for giving his blessings, his gifts, his grace, his truth. Which is why James, the half-brother of Jesus, writes in James Four two, you do not have because you do not ask. And God doesn't want that for us. So he says, ask, seek, knock. You will receive. You will find. You will have the door open to you. <laughs> I think it's important for probably many of you to hear Hear this text in the right way. It's easy to hear this in the wrong way. Sometimes we can hear, you know, this command from Jesus or in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says, pray without ceasing. And we just get frustrated and think, oh, like my prayer life is terrible. And, you know, we're focused on how we don't measure up. We're focused on all of our prayer failure. Oh, I don't pray enough. I really need to pray more. I need to do better. I need to get better at praying. If we approach this text that way, we're going to miss the thrust of it. The point is that prayer is God's means to give you what is good. So ask. He's not trying to say, man, you're so pathetic in your prayer. He's trying to encourage us to pray. 
Seek, you will find. Knock, the, the door will be opened. This is an encouragement. Resources are available to you. It's meant to motivate prayer in our lives. Like excite us and encourage us. So Jesus commands us to pray and then multiplies promises that we will be heard so that we will pray persistently, perseveringly, in faith, trusting those promises that our prayers will be met with response from our almighty God, which leads to where he goes next, the character of God. So point number two, a fortiori, a fortiori father in verses nine through 11, All right? So Edmund Clowney was uh, president of Westminster Seminary up north of Philly, uh, for a while, he passed away several years ago, but he once said, the Bible does not present an art of prayer. It presents the God of prayer. So we hear the commands of Jesus to pray, to ask, seek, and knock. And then we hear the promises he gives that we will receive and find and the door will be open. But we may kind of, you know, cock our head and raise our eyebrow in doubt because of our own experience. And we're going to talk more about that in a little bit. But he knows that. He knows that we might be kind of spring-loaded to doubt him. So he gives more grace by giving this analogy and then speaking of his character here in verses 9 through 11. Or which one of you, verse 9, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? You can imagine a piece of bread like a loaf of bread and then a stone that kind of looks like bread but obviously is not or if he asks for a fish we'll give him a serpent so fish would be good that's good lunch serpent is harmful if you then who are evil <laughs> know how to give good gifts to your children how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him so the way that we view our Heavenly Father will inevitably influence how, I'm sorry, the way that you view earthly fathers will inevitably influence how you view your Heavenly Father and therefore how you pray. So this can actually be pretty problematic for some of you. If you had a terrible abusive father, you may be afraid to ask anything or you may have a hard time believing that he'll be good to you or trust that he even is good. Or maybe in another way, if you had a father who, was, who spoiled you and you got whatever you wanted, that could also have negative impact on how you view God and how he answers or doesn't answer your prayers. So Jesus is not naive to the fact that there are bad fathers in the world some horribly bad fathers in the world. He's speaking to his disciples here and he's making a generally true statement because he's just making an analogy here. So even sinful, evil fathers like me know how to give good things to their children. But the point of the illustration is in verse 11. Jesus is arguing from the lesser to the greater. It's called an a fortiori argument, which is why the point is a fortiori father. It means from the stronger. 
And it's not the first argument like this in the New Testament, nor is it the last. Jesus has already used this argumentation back in chapter 6 of the Sermon on the Mount. So just in the last chapter. Remember, he said, if your heavenly Father feeds the birds of the air, he will most certainly feed you. You see, again, argument from the lesser to the greater. If he feeds the birds, then he'll certainly feed you. You're of so much greater value than the birds. So if we evil human beings, parents, know how to give good things to our children, how much more our Father in heaven? So in heaven is set in contrast to who are evil. Do you see it there? If you look in verse 11, if you then who are evil, how much more will your Father who is in heaven? So again, just underscoring that point. Your father is in heaven. He is light, the Bible says. In him there's no darkness at all. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the father of heavenly lights, James 1. He doesn't change like shifting shadows. He's not Jekyll and Hyde. He never wakes up on the wrong side of the, of the bed. He's not capricious, moody. He's not grumpy, irritable because he's having a bad day? Not at all. This is his character. He is good all the way through. This is the God to whom we pray. So the Bible does not present an art of prayer. It presents the God of prayer. So ask, seek, knock. God is never annoyed or irritated or frustrated or interrupted like we earthly fathers can be interrupted and then we express that irritation and exasperation to our kids and then they don't want to bother us. No, he, he is never irritated when we come. He wants us to come. He invites it. In fact, he commands it. So this command is not meant to be a burden to us, but a gift to us. It's meant to be this wide open invitation to find help and strength and resources from the greatest person in the universe anytime, anywhere. So I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, are familiar with, you know, the, the, the story Annie, right? She's this orphan that gets adopted by Daddy Warbucks. And you can imagine if after Annie was adopted, you know, she finally goes to school. She's settling in to living with Daddy Warbucks. And she goes to school. And let's say she, you know, the lady that was Daddy Warbucks is like administrative assistant. And I'm sure she becomes his wife and whatever. She was wonderfully attentive. So I'm sure this wouldn't happen. But let's say it happens that she doesn't have lunch money. And somehow that gets over, there's an oversight. And, you know, Annie is an orphan, so she's used to being a survivor and she doesn't want to bother anybody. And so she doesn't say anything for a week. And then, you know, Daddy Warbucks catches wind that she didn't have lunch money for a week and she just was skipping lunch. What's he going to do? Is he going to, like, yell at her? <laughs> for Like, what's wrong with you? You know? Or if she comes to him finally after a week and says, you know, um, Daddy, can I have money for lunch? No, he's going to say like, oh, honey, I wish you would have told me earlier. So if we 
know how to give good gifts. How much more? Our Heavenly Father. So we should be motivated and encouraged to ask and seek and knock because of the character of our Heavenly Father. Does God answer us begrudgingly? No. Is he stingy and cold at heart? No. He is not annoyed or irritated or frustrated. He's more bothered when we don't come continually. When we insist under, you know, living under the illusion that we can be independent or self-sufficient, that's what really bothers him because he has our best interest at heart. So cutting ourselves off from our source of life and resources and, and strength and grace, that's what bothers him. So he's not an indulgent, spoiling grandfather, no. He is not cruel or sadistic. He's not, you know, irritated. You know, if somebody's having too good of a time, you know, don't want something or hope for it too much because God will just shoot it down. Don't fear this or that happening because it'll probably happen. Have you ever had those thoughts about the character of God? You know, don't want or don't fear this or that too much or else is the thought. What are your thoughts about God underneath that, those thoughts? Sam Storm says this, virtually every problem in prayer is ultimately traceable to misconceptions about the character of God. So we are so desperately in need of the Bible, God's revelation to us of his character, the Bible to shape our thoughts of God. Not our earthly fathers. Again, whether that was good experience or bad experience, but God's revelation of himself ultimately. Not even how we read our experiences of whether God has answered our prayers or not or been good to us or not. We can't allow that to dictate and you know, project that up onto the character of God. We need to walk by faith and not by sight in God's character revealed to us. We are dealing with the God of, just one example, Isaiah 49, 15 to 16. It's a glorious, sweet passage. God says to his people, can a woman forget her nursing child? that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb, even these may forget. A nursing mother. Yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands, which certainly points forward to Jesus and the scars that are testimony of his I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will not forget you, love and faithfulness. So again, the character of God is so important when it comes to prayer. Now, before we move on to the summary of the matter in verse 12, we have to address some questions and objections because again, this passage kicks up, I think, a lot of questions. Why doesn't this square with my experience? Ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. 
There's so many things I've prayed for. God hasn't answered. It's like my prayers are just hitting the ceiling. Does that mean I'm not a Christian? Maybe I'm just not the real thing. Maybe this applies to other people, but just not to me. I mean, like fearful questions can arise. And doubts, objections to this promise, like cynicism and doubt and frustration and sadness and discouragement can just well up and take over. We can even just give up, lower our expectations, push the questions and the struggles aside. I'm tired of just wrestling with this. Just plug on. Perhaps you've lost faith, lost confidence, lost hope. You've prayed so much, so often in the past for something or other or many things, and they were even good things, right? Like, I'm not asking for a second vacation house. But God hasn't answered. It didn't work. We want this to square with our experience. We want to believe it, but we struggle. And again, it's probably not because we don't have the sports car or the vacation home we want. Maybe we wanted to be married or to have a happy marriage or for all of our kids to follow Jesus. Or to just not be so depressed? Or why did so many horrible things have to happen to me? Or fill in the blank on and on and on. How can those things that I prayed for, they're good things. And if they're good, why has he not answered? So I do not have all the answers. In fact, I read this tweet last night on Twitter. I thought this was so helpful by Jared Wilson. <laughs> he says, you know, quote, you're the preacher? Yes. So you're the guy with all the answers? No, I'm the guy who points to that guy. So that's the best I can do is point to the guy that each of us needs to trust and run to as our mighty fortress and our wonderful counselor. So we are going to address the problem of how our experience doesn't often square with this, what seems like a blanket promise. So first, it may help, and I think it should and can help tremendously to consider how God, your heavenly Father, has heard you, and he's answered you. And he's given good things to you. So if you are a Christian, if you have turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus as your Savior, you are in Christ, you are reconciled to God the Father, there was a time when you kind of woke up from the dead, spiritual dullness, blindness. And what did you do? You asked for Jesus to save you. You asked for forgiveness and cleansing. He took the blinders away. You saw your sin. You saw your need of him. You saw that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And he's this wonderful savior. And you asked him to save you and he did. You were forgiven of all your sins. 
All of them, past, present, future, they're all covered by the blood. They're all paid for. He sent them away from you as far as the east is from the west. Jesus died in your place on the cross. He absorbed all of the righteous wrath and condemnation, the judgment that you deserve. He went through hell for you. You're not going to hell anymore. He is for you and not against you. He is for you forever, now and forever. All of his very great and precious promises. The Bible is full, chock full of all these promises God gives to his people. They're all yours. He is with you now and forever. He will hold you fast. He will keep you. Nothing can snatch you out of his omnipotent hand. Nothing can separate you from his love. You will arrive safe and sound, at peace, at home, in his presence, when you die. For to you, to die is gain. To be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. When Jesus returns then, we're all going to be resurrected to eternal life. All things are going to be made new. New heavens, new earth, new bodies, forever. Perfect love, perfect peace. We will experience fullness of joy forever at his right hand. All you had to do was ask. You asked and he has given you everything. He's given you himself. He's given you all of those promises. They are rock solid, secure. And this life is a vapor with comparison to eternity. So do you see how this a fortiori illustration is supposed to work in our hearts and minds? It's intended to give us this kind of like spiritual, of course, moment. Like we should come away saying, yes, how crazy not to trust God. But, you know, to trust my own untrustworthy self or, you know, some other human, worldly, false promise. Try to find answers someplace else. No, God is good. He's been so good to me. If, if I know how to give good gifts to my kids, if earthly fathers know how to do this, how much more so will he? So I'm going to ask and seek and knock and I'm going to keep coming. So he knows that we, his beloved children, but weak sinners, he knows that we are spring-loaded to downsize his grace and supersize our doubts and our suffering. And so that's why he hits those doubts with this lesser to the greater. It's, it's kind of like a gospel smart bomb. Those supersized facades, you know, of doubt and misperception and all of that, these gospel smart bombs, boom, just blow up all the stuff that gets in the way of his wonderful goodness and us trusting him and coming to him. He's launching these a fortiori arguments and every one of those a fortiori arguments is launched from the cross, which is the greatest of all a fortiori arguments. That is the argument of arguments and it's found in Romans 8.32. 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That's the greatest, the hardest thing. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Everything good that we need to persevere, to be conformed in shape to the image of Jesus and to make it all the way home. So a fortiori can actually go both ways, from the lesser to the greater, from the greater to the lesser. But the point is, here, (laughs) this is the greatest greater to the lesser argument in all the universe. If he didn't spare his own son, do you think he is going to be stingy now with his grace and, and the good things that you need to make it all the way home? Absolutely not. So ask, seek, knock. So we... We need to first see how good God has actually been to us. And we all need kind of reminded and reoriented because it's so easy to start to get focused on what he's not doing in our view and start to cast a dark shadow on his character. And then we stop coming, which is exactly what Satan wants us to do. So we need to see his character and his goodness and believe it and trust him. But there's more that we can say with the objections that sometimes get kicked up. You know, this doesn't really square with my experience. So nobody views this as a blank check except maybe some crazy, you know, health wealth people. John Stott says it well. He says, the promises of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount are not unconditional. A moment's thought will convince us of this. It is absurd to suppose that the promise, ask and it shall be given to you, is an absolute pledge with no strings attached. That knock and it will be opened to you is an open sesame to every closed door without exception. And that by the waving of a prayer wand, any wish will be granted and every dream will come true. It would turn prayer into magic. The person who prays into a magician like Aladdin and God into our servant who appears instantly to do our bidding like Aladdin's genie every time we rub our little prayer lamp. So if it's not absolute, then what qualifies it? How do you establish the parameters? In doing that, starting to establish those parameters, the qualifiers, you are starting to zero in on the good things that God is promising to us here. So where are those boundaries? We've got to figure that out, right? Well, isn't it safest to go with the context? I think this was really helpful to me this week because, I mean, if anybody takes the Bible seriously, we've, you've, you've probably wrestled with promises like this that seem so just blank check, absolute, and it's like, What? It's safest to go with the context. This is in the Sermon on the Mount. So let's let the Sermon on the Mount shape those boundaries. Will God refuse you the grace to embody the ethics of the kingdom? So for instance, the provision that he promises in the midst of anxiety-prompting circumstances. We just came off of that in chapter 6. Don't be anxious about your life, what you're going to eat or drink, what you're going to wear. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. Interesting. Ask, he's talked about prayer earlier. Seek, he just talked about seeking in chapter six. 
Again, good reason, like little pointers, we should be taking our qualifiers from the context. So will God give you grace to not be anxious and to trust him and seek first his kingdom and his righteousness? Yes. That may not work out as far as circumstantial answers that we want, but that doesn't mean God has abandoned us or isn't good or doesn't love us. We need to tether these promises to their context, to how Jesus is calling us to follow him in the Sermon on the Mount, how to live in his kingdom. So we started back in Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn over their sins and the sin of others. He's going to help us know that our hands are empty, that we are spiritually bankrupt. When we start to forget about that and we say, oh, Lord, help me realize how needy I am. Is he going to give grace for that? (laughs) Absolutely. When we see how critical, hypercritical we are and judgmental, chapter 7, judge not lest you be judged. And we say, oh, Lord, please help me to be gracious and understanding and benefit of the doubt-ish with others. Is he going to answer that prayer as you ask and seek and knock? Is it going to happen like that? You know, you're just going to be inoculated against all hypercriticism for the rest of your life if you ask once. No, we need to continue to ask and seek and knock because change is a process. So if we know how critical we tend to be, how hateful we tend to be, how lustful we tend to be, how unloving we tend to be, we are going to keep asking and seeking and knocking that the grace of God would change us from the inside out and we would be conformed to Christ as we follow Christ. So this is good news. Oh, I want to change. I want to be more like Jesus. He hasn't left us to ourselves. He doesn't just give us bald commands. He gives us commands and promises. And then he says, come on, come and ask me for help. I'll give it. D.A. Carson says it like this. The kingdom of heaven requires poverty of spirit, purity of heart, truth, compassion, a non-retaliatory spirit, a life of integrity. And we lack all these things. Then let us ask for them. Are you as holy, as meek, as truthful, as loving, as pure, as obedient to God as you would like to be? I'm not. (laughs) I'm sure you're not too. Then ask him for grace that these virtues may multiply in your life. Such asking when sincere and humble is already a step of repentance and faith. For it is an acknowledgement that the virtues the kingdom requires you you do not possess, (laughs) requires, the virtues the kingdom requires, sorry, you do not possess, and that these same virtues only God can give. Moreover, I suspect that this asking, seeking, and knocking has a total package as its proper object. It does not seek holiness but spurn obedience. It does not seek obedience but hedge when it comes to purity. It is a wholehearted pursuit of the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So, again, I think that's hugely helpful. This doesn't square with my experience. Hold on. Look at it in the context of the Sermon on the Mount and you say, okay, this applies to seeking to live the ethics of the kingdom. Yes, Lord, 
you have answered and I need to keep seeking because I need to keep growing and changing and being shaped into the image of Jesus. You know, it also could be helpful to kind of flip the thing and say, how would I expect God to answer? So especially if the requests, what I'm asking for, are governed and guided by the Sermon on the Mount, what might it look like for God to answer a prayer if you're asking to become more poor in spirit, more consistently poor in spirit, or to mourn over sin? That's probably not going to happen like on some awesome vacation somewhere. It may come in the context of trial and suffering and need or even failure and seeing the depth of your sin and the nature of your heart. So we might think God is not answering because things are hard circumstantially, but maybe he's answering because they are hard. Think of Paul with the thorn in the flesh. He had this thorn in the flesh. It was like, it was this messenger of Satan, 2 Corinthians 12, you can read it later, harassing him. He said, Lord, take it away. No, take it away. No, take it away. No. And it wasn't just like three, this was probably like three extended times of wrestling, like, Lord, I could be so much more effective for you if I wasn't hampered by this thorn. And God said, my grace is sufficient. I'm actually humbling you with this pain and suffering so that you recognize that you are needy and dependent. You don't get conceited because of the surpassing revelations I've given to you. And it's when you're weak that I can be strong, that I will be strong. My strength will be perfected in your weakness. And Paul says, oh, okay. That wasn't how I was initially wanting you to respond, but I see your wisdom in answering this way. So I will boast in my weaknesses because I want your power to shine brightly in my life. So God is no genie in the lamp, but he is good. And he wants what is ultimately and eternally good for us. And he is committed to molding and shaping us into the image of Jesus. So let's be encouraged and motivated to ask and seek and knock and guard against any, anything in us where we want to be God. We want to twist his arm to have our will be done on earth as it is in our own mind. We need to be careful of the tendency to shake our little clay fist at the potter. God knows what's good for us. And we can trust him. Final point, the bookend, verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And if you're reading along and you get this stuff about prayer and then, boom, this law and the prophets and, you know, golden rule and all this, like what? Where did that come from? Seems like it's disconnected, doesn't it? Like how did you get from 7-11 to 7-12? Well, you need to actually step back and see the Sermon on the Mount with a wide-angle lens because 712 is actually the bookend to 517. Okay? So we are approaching the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. So this verse 12 is the bookend. 
So Jesus gave the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 1 to 12. He talked about us being the salt and light of the world. When the Beatitude living goes public, it influences, right? Then in, in 5, 17 to 20, Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He says, I didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill it. And what is the summary of the law and the prophets? It's love God, love your neighbor as yourself. So he then goes on to say, this is what it looks like, heart level love, as far as hate and lust and on and on. And this is now the conclusion here of the section and verses 13 to 29 are the conclusion that says okay now you've got the fork in the road two paths two destinations two different kinds of fruit two different kinds of foundations build your life on the on the rock or the sand so this is the conclusion so love your neighbor as yourself again is a very sobering standard that's not an easy thing think about what if I was as passionate and committed to the good of neighbor as I am to myself? Quality and quantity. Ugh. Again, we need help, which is why, isn't it wonderful that we can ask and seek and knock so that we can love well? So we enter the kingdom poor in spirit. We grow in the kingdom by poverty of spirit, depending on God and his goodness, asking and seeking and knocking. And we can love. We can fulfill the law. We can live the golden rule because he first loved us. Romans 8.32, the love of God for us in Christ. We can love now because he first loved us. The a fortiori God makes obedience to the law of love possible. And our Father promises to give us what we need as we ask and seek and knock in order to become the loving disciples molded and shaped, shaped into the image of Christ in order to live out the loving ethics of the kingdom. So let's pray. Oh God, you are so good and you have shown that most ultimately at the cross and every bit of promised good flows from the cross and it is a mighty, inexhaustible fountain. And I pray that we would be motivated, that we would be encouraged to come and drink to ask and seek and knock. So Lord, just would you blow up our doubts and, and just replace our false perceptions of your goodness or your willingness where we need it to be kind of a <laughs> two by four do that, where it needs to be tender just undoing 
healing, working down deep to to help us trust you and be sure of you. Do that, Lord, all that we might trust you and know how good you are so that we ask and seek and knock and follow Jesus and become the loving disciples that he intends us to be. In his name, amen.